All right, is everybody settled? All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. So thank you again for coming. Uh, this is, what, week three <laughs> for discerning deceptive doctrines. Uh, so last week, we quickly covered the central beliefs that Jehovah's, Witness, Jehovah's Witnesses have about God, Jesus' salvation, spiritual authority, and the Bible. Uh, today, we're going to take those claims and examine them against the Bible and see whether they hold up to Scripture or not. Uh, along the way, I'm also going to give you tips on how to use this information uh, when you're interacting with them, uh, and hopefully it'll encourage your faith as well and give you confidence uh, in, in your faith as well. So um, I brought those resources that I did last week as well. So the 10 Most Important Things series by Ron Rhodes, great series. Uh, he's got one of Catholics, uh, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, he's got a bunch of other ones as well. But he also has the thicker versions called Reasoning from the Scriptures with Muslims, with Jehovah's Witnesses, etc. They're a little more in depth, uh, but it gives you a lot more detailed information for like what the Bible actually teaches relative to the doctrines that these groups teach. So, great resource to have. <clears throat> All right, so just really quick review on the name of Jehovah. So or this is just, it's a man-made name for God. It's not biblical uh, and the, for the reasons that we went over last time. Uh, but it's just, it's not worth criticizing them for their use of it, uh, for at least for the use of it in particular, because it's somewhat common in the English language uh, to do so. It's, but it is still a man-made term. Uh, where you really do want to criticize them is their emphasis on the name. Because uh, the New Testament never uses the name of Yahweh or Jehovah, ever. Uh, when quoting from the Old Testament, verses that contain the name Yahweh, uh, or Jehovah, if you prefer, uh, they all translate it as Lord. That's just what they did, uh, and that is what modern English translators have done. They've carried on that tradition, uh, and, and they've put it in the Old Testament as well. So you'll see Lord. Then O-R-D would be the small capital letters. Uh, that's the name of God that they're just translating as Lord instead of as Yahweh. Uh, Jesus never called uh, God Yahweh. All right, He only called God by the name of Father or Lord. Those are the names that he used. So I think those are the names that we should more emphasize when we're speaking about God. Uh, the New Testament, however, does uplift the name of Jesus, not Jehovah or Yahweh. All right, their attempt to uplift that name obscures, obscures that. So these are questions we went over last time. Uh, but it's in whose name should we meet together? Demons are subject to whose name? Repentance and forgiveness should be preached in whose name? In whose name are you to believe and receive the forgiveness of sins? Whose name should be invoked as we bring our petitions to God in prayer? And in whose name is the Holy Spirit sent? And finally, whose name is above every other name? Of course, the answer to all of those is in the name of Jesus. Uh, that's, that is the name that is just uplifted all the time. It's the name that the Holy Spirit has been sent to proclaim. All right. Uh, these are questions that you should absolutely use if you're interacting with Jehovah's Witness. Really get them to think about it, because all of these verses that I quoted from, you can use their own Bible translation with them as well. All right, because they're not going to trust 
your ESV or King James or anything else, uh, they, they're going to want their NWT, the New World Translation. But it's all right there that we're supposed to uh, uplift Jesus' name. Mm-hmm. So the Trinity. So remember last week, Jehovah's Witnesses denied the Trinity. Uh, they claim that the term Trinity never appears in the Bible. Uh, this is a claim that every group tries to make, but it's just a term that theologians have, get, have developed or used to describe a concept that is taught in the Bible. Every group uses terms like this. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses use the term annihilationism in replace, and that they believe that uh, hell doesn't exist, that when you die, if you don't believe in God, you're annihilated. Like, you just cease to exist. Well, the term annihilationism does not appear anywhere in the Bible. It's a concept that they've taken and applied a term to. So it's, it's just a non sequitur. So uh, they also argue that Scripture teaches that God is one. They're actually correct on that point. Uh, that's, they start out there, and then they fail to see some other key verses. So here are, here are some of those verses. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord... Uh, our God is one. The Lord is one. And that's quoting from the Old Testament Deuteronomy. And the, where it says Lord there, that is the name of God, Yahweh. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So he's the only one. There is no God but one. So it's not just the Old Testament excuse me, proclaiming this, it's in the New Testament as well. And there are dozens of verses that we could quote uh, to demonstrate this. But since it's not in a a point of disagreement, we're just going to use those as suffice. So they want to follow that up, saying that there is only one God and Jesus could not be God because there is only one God. Uh, He's a separate person from God. And Jesus, they say, denied being God. And these are some verses that they quote. It says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's from John 6. So if Jesus is God, then who sent him down from heaven? And by the way, if you are sitting down talking with a Jehovah's Witness, this is exactly what they're going to do. They're going to say, open up your Bible to John 6, 38, and read it. And they'll, they'll ask you the question. Right? If Jesus is God, then who sent him down from heaven? Right? So then they'll say, turn to John chapter 7. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And then they'll say, Jesus said his teachings belong to someone else. The sender is greater than the one who is sent, right? So is not Jesus saying that God is greater than himself? And then they'll say, turn to John chapter 14. You've heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. This is Jesus speaking. Uh, If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Jesus even said that the Father is greater than himself. So how can he be God? Well, these questions are answered once you get into, like once you understand as much as you can, at least, the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, which we're going to dig into here in a few slides. Uh, But they also don't just stop there. They want to attack the Holy Spirit as well. They do not, like, they've demoted the Holy Spirit not just from being God, but that he's even a person at all, all right? So they've they've, uh, kicked him twice. Uh, So this Holy Spirit is not God, they say. They argue that he's not even a person. He's just an action, his active force. They compare it to, like, electricity running through a house. It's just what empowers things. It's what he does. 
Uh, they think it's impersonal. And they'll quote Micah 3.8, uh, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might. So it's just something you're filled with. It's an energy is a word that they'll use for it. <clears throat> All right, but are they right about this? All right, obviously I don't think so. Uh, they are right about the fact that God is one, right? That's undeniable. Uh, however, despite the clarity of that issue, that God is one, three different persons that are all distinct from one another are all clearly called God in the Bible, without question. Uh, the Father, the Son, who is Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, they're all specifically called God. All right. Father is God. This one's not in contention between us and them. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that's Peter, uh, writing right there. So from 1 Peter chapter 1, it's actually how he starts his letter. Jesus is also called God. So Jesus appeared to the disciples post-resurrection. Right? Uh, this is from John 20, 28. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus did not make the point to correct him. There are other points in times where beings, such as in the book of Revelation, an angel appears to John, who wrote the same books, right, the Gospel and Revelation, and he falls down to worship the angel, and the angel rebukes him for it, right? He keeps giving a correction. But here, Jesus himself does not correct him from calling him my God and worshiping him. So that's clearly an indication that Jesus is God. Uh, and remember last week, uh, we looked at Romans uh, chapter 8, in relation to calling on the name of the Lord to be saved, and how that's actually a quote from Joel. And when it says Lord, it's Yahweh. So he who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. And then Paul is saying that you call on the name of Jesus, who is Lord, you'll be saved. So he's equating uh, Yahweh with Jesus, saying that he is indeed God Almighty. Mark does the exact same thing. So it's not just an invention of Paul. That is a, a critique that progressives will often make against uh uh, Christianity is that Paul is the one who invented all this stuff later on. Uh, but just go right to the Gospel of Mark, which was written about 20 years after the death of Jesus. So it's really early, and it's written by somebody who witnessed these events. Right away, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, just clearly linking him to God, saying he's one in essence there, uh, as it is with, written in Isaiah the prophet's, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So he's quoting from Isaiah. So if you go to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and read the original Hebrew there that Mark was translating into Greek, it says, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord or Yahweh. All right, that's the capital letters there make straight in the desert a highway to our God, which he translates as his paths, right? So he's clearly stating that at the very beginning of the gospel, that John the Baptist was preparing the way of God, who's Yahweh, who he equates to be Jesus. So it's very, very clear. Uh, and by the way, God himself even calls Jesus God. So if you look to the book of Hebrews, chapter one, verse eight, says, but of the Son, he being God, says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. 
right? So God himself is calling Jesus God. Like he's referring to him, hey God, like having a conversation and he's telling him what's going to happen, all right? Your throne is forever and ever. Very clear that Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is also God. Uh, we have a scenario in Acts chapter 5. Hey, go ahead, Richard. So a couple of those, um, but they, they're okay with calling Jesus a God, right? They, well, they say a God, um, but what they really mean is by God is just like a spiritual being. That's their definition of lowercase God is spiritual being. So like when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, is it okay with that in the sense of, is it, oh, I mean, is it, is it like, yeah, I mean, they're going to take it in a lowercase sense. Okay. Um, we're going to talk about that in a little bit, too, with the article. <clears throat> when you look at the Greek and whether that is the God there in the Greek. Uh, but the point here is to not to say, because they, they will, they might come back at you with that. It's to say that the scripture is clearly equating Yahweh or Jehovah, if that's the term they want to use, with Jesus. They're the same person. Right. Right? In the Mark and the Isaiah passage, that was much clearer. Very clear. Yeah. Yes. So that's why I brought it up, because that's, that's undeniable. And you can use their version of the Bible for that as well. Because it, it, where it says the Lord uh, in, chapter, in, or in Mark chapter 1, they put the way of Yahweh. or Sorry, the way of Jehovah is what it says in their translation. And then you say, well, it's quoting Isaiah, right? And like it's, or like it's, it's quoting from Isaiah, which also says Jehovah. He's making the way for God. Like clearly there's, he's calling him Jehovah, you know? So it's, yeah, it's not just enough to point, point to John 20. The Mark chapter 1 and the Romans chapter 8 are going to be really key for that, for emphasizing that it's Jehovah and Jesus are the same person or the same they're both God. <laughs> Put it that way. They're both God. They're not the same person. Uh, good question. Does that answer your question? Yep. Okay. The Holy Spirit is called God. Uh, so if you remember from Acts chapter 5, we have a scenario where the, uh, the, the earliest Christians are all pooling their resources together. Uh, this, is a, this is a voluntary thing that they're doing because they, want, they just want to support the needs of their community. That's a good, godly thing to do. Well, there is a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who they wanted to appear that they were godly as well as everybody else. And so they sold their property and they decided they're going to keep some of it back, but say it was the full amount. All right. So they're going to lie about what's going on here. Uh, and this is what Peter said to an Ananias when he found out that uh, he had lied. He said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter very clearly is saying the Holy Spirit and God, like the Holy Spirit is God. No question there. Uh, and by the way, as to whether the Holy Spirit is a person, you can't lie to like a truck. Right. Like uh, or anything like this. So like I promised truck or Mike, your car, I'm going to take you to the car wash later when you never intend to. Right. I mean, that's just kind of stupid. So. Um, so it's obviously a person there. 
So, but even beyond that, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, teaches and brings things to remembrance for the apostles. So he's actively doing things. He convicts the world of sin. He can be grieved, right? Your Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, right? You can't grieve your car. You can't grieve your electricity that's running through your house, right? It doesn't care. Uh, the Holy Spirit has a will, right? It's, so it's 1 Corinthians, Paul saying that he has a will to, de- to divide out uh, gifts to, to whomever he wills, right? He also uses his own mind, Paul says, to search out the depths of God. So there's all kinds of things that he's doing that clearly make him a person. So he's a person and he's God, all right? Uh, he, the Holy Spirit is revealed to be both a person and a God. He is distinct from both the Father who sends him and the Son whom he proclaims. All right, so he's God, but he's different. All right. So furthermore, the, there are attributes that only apply to God that are applied to all three of these persons. And they're the only three persons that the scripture ever applies them to. So omnipresence, um, that's just Latin for all, like he's everywhere, all he's present everywhere. Uh, The father is is ascribed this in Jeremiah 22, the son is prescribed this in Matthew 28, and the Holy Spirit in Psalm 139. And I just picked out one key verse, but there are probably 12 that you could put after each one of these if you wanted to. Uh, omniscience, so all-knowing, the Father, Romans 11, the Son, Matthew 9, the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, omnipotence, the all-powerful, the Father, 1 Peter 1, 5, the Son, uh, Matthew 28, 18, the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 1, they're all described holiness, the Father in Psalm 90, the Son in Acts chapter 3, the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 1, and they're all described as eternal beings which is the Father, Psalm 90, again, uh, the Son, Micah 5.2, John 1.2, Revelation 1.8.17, I couldn't restrain myself there, uh, the Holy Spirit in Hebrews chapter 9. So these are all attributes that only can apply to God, and yet they're ascribed to these three people regularly throughout Scripture. So we're in a bit of a conundrum, aren't we? So it's undeniable the Bible teaches there's only one God, Yet there are three distinct persons that the Bible specifically calls God, describes attributes that are that can only be given to God. So is it just a contradiction or what? <clears throat> Let's just take a look at Matthew 28 again to just help us figure this out. Jesus, he commands us, like all of us, to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing him in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Take note that the name, like when it says in the name, it doesn't say in the names of the Holy Spirit, as if there's three separate beings. Uh, It also doesn't say, it doesn't list them all. Like, uh, so there's no article, or sorry, there is an article after each one. So it's the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So it's not merely three designations of a single person. Right, because then you could just give the descriptions. So it's emphasizing in the Greek with the article in front of each one that these are separate names, these are separate persons. All right, so we have three persons all unified under one name. All right, so we have a triunity or a trinity, if you will. So, right, so that's just what trinity means it says three and one through trinity. So it's a pretty apt term to describe this. So 
This is just a visual representation of it that I think will help you because it's hard to wrap your mind around this concept okay, of the Trinity, admittedly, and that's why it gets challenged all the time. Like almost every false Christian church has a problem with the Trinity. Like almost every single one of them, uh, it's because it seems contradictory, but this is what it is. So the Father, he's not the Son, he's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, is not the Son. The Son is not the Father, not the Holy Spirit. But the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. That's, that's, there are three persons and one God. It's just the only way that it can be explained. All right, it's, we call it the Godhead. It's another way to say it. Did you have a question, Sylvia? Or, no? All right. Is there any questions about this? All right, so like, this is something that you absolutely could ask them about. So just walk them through these verses, right? And just say, will you read Jeremiah 22 with me? Will you read Matthew 28, 18? And will you read Psalm 139? Do you agree that these are attributes that can only be given to God? And yet all three of these people have them, right? And then read Romans 11, read Romans, or Matthew 9, read 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Just walk them through it, right? It's just, it's the conclusion that you're just trying to bring them to. Is that yeah? That this is this is not a pagan doctrine. It's it that's that's a method that they're used to. By the way, when when you're going through the Bible study with them, they it's they're going to say, "Hey, read this verse," and then they'll ask you a question based off of it. So when you reverse right, verse it right. It's not as nice when the rabbit's got the gun. Uh, that that they'll they'll understand the method and what you're doing, and they can they can appreciate it. All right. So it's, it's something that's familiar to them. <clears throat> uh, an objection that they bring up, and you'll hear this as well from all other group, all kinds of other groups, it's that the Trinity was developed, the doctrine of the Trinity was developed over time and was officially adopted at the Council of Nicaea in 325 under Emperor Constantine. This is just not true. Okay, it is true that the doctrine uh, was fleshed out in a creedal statement at this time, but that does not mean that the doctrine was developed at that time. Right? We've already shown you that it's clearly biblical. All right, Paul, or I mean Peter, who was an apostle, said that the Holy Spirit was God. He wrote right in First Peter that the Father is God. You know, so like it's it's going all the way back to the apostles. Uh, you can even uh, like first and second century manuscripts. Uh, it was common practice when they would write the name of God that they would only use two letters to abbreviate the name. It's another way of them trying to not uh, tr trying to honor God's name by not taking it in vain. And in Greek New Testament scriptures, you'll commonly find that Holy Spirit and Jesus will just have two letter abbreviations. So this goes all the way back to the beginning. All right. <clears throat> So is true, this, the, 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 doc, the, the language surrounding the doctrine did develop over time because you have, as you're talking about it, you're sharing with people, yeah, Jesus is God, uh, God, or the God the Father is God. It's people ask questions like, well, what? I thought you said God was one. Oh, yeah, you're right. Well, uh, it's a tri-unity, you know, it's a trinity. And so language does absolutely develop over time. Uh, but 
It didn't happen until 325 because that is when the attack was happening. There were groups, heretical groups all over the, the empire that were teaching that this doctrine was false. And so that was why they had to take the time, say, hey, let's really flesh this out, develop a statement. This is what Christians believe. This is what you need to believe. So that's just because that's what was being attacked at the time. That's all. Uh, crayon analogy. All right. So let's just say that my favorite color is red. All right. Hopefully this, is, this uh, analogy isn't too convoluted for you. But, so, and I've told several people over the years that red is indeed my favorite color. All right, then some new people show up and they join the church and they start telling everybody that my favorite color is yellow. All right, so they're the heretics, right? Uh, so I decide to address this great color controversy before it splits the church, right? And I inform everybody that my favorite color actually is indeed red and it's always been red. Well, now some people want to know what exactly the shade of red is, all right? So I'm clarifying, no, I don't like red-orange. I don't like red. I don't like light red, all right? It's just more pink, not in favor of that. Uh, I don't like pastel red. I just like a nice, bright, plain red, okay? Uh, years later, all right, somebody has the misfortune of having to go through the notes of what happened during the Great Crayon Controversy at Riverview. Uh, and then they, they tell the story like this. Oop, I messed up my notes. Uh, he liked yellow, he moved to orange, and then added a dash of red to it, and finally landed on the bright red. Uh, it's clear that he, his view of the, or his, uh, his enjoyment of the color red changed over time, right? And that's their conclusion. But it's like, no, I was red consistently throughout, but I didn't have to clarify what kind of red I liked until it was, there was controversy surrounding it, you know? So, the church has always taught that there is one God, and that there are three distinct persons who are God. Any questions about that? We good? <clears throat> We're doing on time. All right. So the Nicene Creed, I thought I thought it'd be great if we just took the time to read it together as a class. Uh, obviously, you don't need to say it out loud if you don't believe it, but join me if you do. Uh, it's it's a really good summation of what we all believe here at Riverview. So uh, it's two slides long. So we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made, for us men and for our salvation. He came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets, 
We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So that's the doctrine that they came up with at the Nicene Council. Right there. So quick, to the point, very clear. Uh, has, have you guys heard that before? And a lot of you. So I like I was raised Catholic and we recited this uh, regularly throughout the year. It's a little different version. It's a different translation. Uh, I, I modernized some of the wording because like no one knows the quick and the dead mean anymore. And, uh, and I also changed uh, universal or the word there in Latin is Catholic. Uh, lowercase c Catholic, so you believe in one Catholic church and the Catholics love that. Um, but that's just an untranslated word. Like if you actually translate what Catholic means, it's universal. So <clears throat> yeah, a little different. It's also maybe just a different translation of the original Greek. So yeah. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Correct. Um, they do not mean uh, that baptism forgives sins. It's, uh, we'll talk about it when we get to Catholics in a couple weeks, but it's, uh, it's, it's related to Jesus's baptism uh, and his death that Mark connects in Mark chapter one with the baptism of Jesus and John chapter one. Uh, but it, it doesn't mean that baptism forgives sins because it doesn't but but baptism is a it's a symbolic gesture of the forgiveness of sins and you're you're baptized into Christ and your sins are forgiven that way so yeah good question I thought somebody might <laughs> might challenge that one so <clears throat> let's see here. So we're going to get a little bit into the Greek here. Uh, it's going to be a little bit technical. Uh, but these are, this is what the neutral, New World Translation says about Jesus. So these are two verses that I mentioned last week. Uh, first one is John chapter 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. This one was in the beginning with God. All things came into existence through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into existence. So that's their translation. That's not what your verse, your, traverse, uh, your translation says, unless you're using their Bible. Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 17, says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, because by means of him all other things were created in the heavens and on the earth. The things visible and the things invisible, whether they are thrones or lordships or governments or authorities, all other things have been created through him and for him. Also is before all other things, and by means of him all other things were made to exist. Okay, so they inserted a bunch of words uh, that aren't in the Greek. Uh, let's see if there's anything else to say about that. All right. So that is the Greek. For John 1 through 3, uh, you probably don't know how to read it. Uh, <clears throat> but basically, so it's going to be a little technical. Uh, 
We're going to be looking at the use of articles or lack thereof, that uh, John's usage. Uh, article is just the word the or a, like in English, okay? Uh, it's something that's very unlikely to ever convince a Jehovah's Witness that they're wrong about the deity of Jesus, okay? Uh, it's also something you're almost certainly not going to remember all the details about as we go through. Uh, so why am I bothering to take the time on it? It's so that, because they'll probably bring it up, right? They're going to point and say, ah, the Greek says a God. So I want you just to have confidence that when your translation says the word was God, that it doesn't actually say a God, Okay. Uh, if you can remember this enough, or if you know, you, you know, like you can understand it well enough, feel free to use it as well, because uh, they do have an interlinear translation of the Bible that you can use with them. So you don't actually even need to be able to read this for this to work. You just need to, to understand the points and know where to point to show them. Okay. So I just don't want you to be surprised when they bring it up. That's all. So let's take a look. Uh, so has anybody here ever studied Spanish and you know that they change the endings of words, particularly their verbs, uh, just so that they, you'll know whether the, what the tense is and how many people there are. Well, Greek does the same thing except way more. Okay. So they're all their nouns, their word, like their, like everything has a different ending based on it so that you can figure out whether something is male, female. Uh, the tense, the type of word it is, whether it's whether the word is an object, like a like a direct object, whether the word is the subject of a sentence, etc. Uh, this enables them to use a wide array of word choice, like word order. So in English, word order matters a lot. Okay, so you can't just mix up the sentence and figure out what it means, but you can in Greek because of the endings. So when you see, for example. This first sentence says, enarche en halagos. You know that halagos is the subject of the sentence because it's got the Omicron Sigma ending. And it also has the, the uh, Omicron article in front of it, indicating that it is the subject. So this, what this means is the word was in the beginning. That's just what it means in English. <clears throat> uh, you'll notice that in our case, so that's in the beginning, it doesn't have an article in front of it. It just technically says in beginning was the word. But if you'll notice, you look at the New World Translation, it has in the beginning, right? So they inserted the word the there, but it's legitimate because the article doesn't just mean the, okay, in the Greek. It's a way of pointing to something grammatically, okay? I know this is kind of confusing, <laughs> but... We're gonna to try to get through it. Um, so the presence of the Greek article or lack thereof does not add automatically mean we just put the when translating. All right. So it can be used in multiple different ways. Uh, and the way it's being used here is something called the predicate nominative, nominative. Okay, so it's basically, we can do this in English as well. It's just not very common. It's a way of ascribing the qualities from one noun into another noun. So the teacher is I, is an example in English. So that is technically a grammatically correct sentence in English, even though it doesn't seem like it to you. Uh, it's basically the pronoun I is predicating something about the subject teacher, okay? 
me cannot be used. You can't say the teacher is me because the pronoun is not receiving the action of a verb. It's predicating something about it. So that one has to be I, which is subjective, uh, which subjective doesn't mean it's questionable. It means it's the subject, uh, which nominative is just the Greek word for subject. <clears throat> All right. So in ain halagos, in the beginning was the word. Kai is and. And then it's halagos ain prostantheon. So it's the word was with God. And then ton is the... Uh, direct object ending. And so it's, so it's why it's theon, because they agree. So it's was with God, it's the object. Kai theos, and God. And then ain halagos. So you're gonna have two, you have two subjects here now. So you have theos and logos. You notice how they have the same endings? They both say that they're the subject. So how do you know which one? Which one was? Was it God was the word or was it the word was God? Well, you put the article in front of the one that's a subject. That's just basic Greek grammar rules there. So it's, it's not God was the word. It's the word was God. So it's not even it's it's a, it's a predicate nominative way of God or of uh, the qualities of God being ascribed to the word. OK, so like I said, it is technical. So that's all it is. So it's just not a God. It just cannot be. So it's just, this is basic Greek grammar, by the way. I looked it up in my Greek grammar book. Uh, it's just chapter eight. You learn it within the first month of Greek. It's, it's just, it's basic. And, uh, and I didn't cover this last time about Charles Russell. So he made a big deal about this, about he, Jesus was just a God. Uh, <clears throat> But he was actually, he, he was, uh, there was a, a pastor in Canada who was receiving his literature and wrote a pamphlet denouncing Charles Taze Russell. And he said, this guy doesn't know the Greek. He doesn't know any of this stuff. He's just wrong about this. Like, it's clear. Well, Charles Russell was unhappy about that. And he actually sued this pastor up in Canada for defamation. Well, things didn't go very well for him in court when the attorney is asking him, do you know Greek? He said yes, and he said okay, and he handed him a Greek manuscript and said, can you read this? And then he said, I can't read it. Well, can you identify even a Greek letter on here? He couldn't identify even a single letter, okay? If you were part of a Greek fraternity in college, you know more Greek than Charles says Russell knew, okay? That's just all it is. So he's making, he made claims about this, that he had absolutely no way of knowing if they were true or not, okay? And it was proven in a court of law. So, and by the way, and he wasn't the one who made up his own translation. So he, this isn't his translation. He's just made statements about it. Uh, the governing body over the Jehovah's Witness organization they are the ones who did this translation, and they did it anonymously, so they won't tell you who the scholars were that did it. Uh, but they know, like I know that they know that this Greek doesn't have the word uh, doesn't have the word a in it, right? Because if you look at their interlinear translation, which is available for free on the internet, uh, it just says "in beginning was the word," so they're not. They're just translating the word and telling you what it means above it. They're not putting it in the, into order here. 
And it says, and the word was toward the God, and God was the word. Notice that they don't put the Greek, the article in it. So they know that it doesn't belong there. Okay? Otherwise, they would have put it in their interlinear translation. So it's something that they're doing uh, intentionally to obscure this truth from their members and to use it as a way of manipulating outsiders to get into the group. All right. Um, same thing here. So this is First Colossians 15. We're not going to go in depth into this. This is just the exact same thing. You notice how they use the word other throughout that they inserted? Well, if they have the interlinear where they're just translating what the word is, right? they're not trying to put it into a sentence. You notice you just look through here. There is no other at all. There is no word for other in the Greek. They have a word for other. It's not there anywhere at all. So you can just pull up their, their kingdom interlinear translation, point it out to them. Your translation has the word other in it, but the Greek doesn't. And this is a Jehovah's Witness resource. It's important to them because they won't take resources that are not from the Watchtower Society. Okay, But they will use this one because it comes from their organization. So feel free to use it against them. So it's, it's odd to me. I still can't believe that they put this resource out there. Um, I think it just has to be because they're trying to just show some legitimacy uh, and just hoping that no one looks at it. Well, unfortunately for them, I did look at it, and now hopefully you can use it as well. Uh, oh, this is a great resource that I recommend if you want to look at the Greek a little more if you don't know it. It's called netbible.org. You can pull up multiple translations right next to each other. Uh, so they have their own translation called the Net Bible. It's a really good translation. And then you can put the Greek or the Hebrew side by side. And uh, like I have the word chorus highlighted there. Yeah, that just means separate or besides. So it's apart from, apart from him, nothing was made that was made is what that is in, Greek, in English. Uh, so you can just highlight it. You can see all the other words that are in that, on that page that are in the Greek or the English and how it's translated. It's a really helpful tool. I use it all the time when I'm doing Bible study. Uh, but let's go back to uh, John 1, uh, chapter 1 real quick. So if you guys have pen and paper with or pencil, it'd be good to do this. This is an exercise that you could do with a Jehovah's Witness and that you absolutely should do with them. Okay? So make a square like this, or two squares side by side, I should say. Right across the top of it, everything that exists at the top of the square. All right. In the left box, write all things that never came into being. All things that, so this is things that exist that never came into being. It means they've always existed, okay? And then all things that came into being or into existence. So what belongs on the left-hand box there? There's only one, one thing or one being that never came into being. And who is it? God. All right. So what goes in the right box? Everything else. Good. All created things. Everything else. Okay. 
So ask them these questions as you go. So what goes in this box? What goes in this one? Okay, they'll be able to figure it out because they're normal people as well. They can, they know. So outside of the box, draw an arrow and underneath it write, all things were created through Jesus. That's from John 1, verse 3. This is going to be a real mind bender for them when you walk walk through walk through this with them. Okay, so now at this point in time, if you have a coin or paperclip or anything, or you can just write in the box as well. Um, this is it's meant to represent Jesus. So here's a Jesus coin. Okay, uh, which side, which box does Jesus belong to? All right, correctly. Which one? Which side do you guys believe he belongs in? The left one, okay? So our instincts are to put him in the left box because we acknowledge that he's God, okay? If you ask this of a Jehovah's Witness, they're going to take that coin, they're going to put it over in that box, okay? They're going to say he belongs in there because he was created by God, so he was created, and then he's the one who created everything else, okay? So all things came into existence through him. That's what John 1.3 says, even in their translation, so if Jesus caused all created things to come into existence, then he must have existed before all created things came into existence. So this is a contradiction. Right? Because if all things that came into being go into here, but Jesus is, was created, then he could not have created, right? Then he could not have created everything because he didn't exist. So did Jesus create himself? Right, so it's, it's it's a logical fallacy. Right, it doesn't work. <clears throat> so it's it's just an absurd claim that they make. Okay, so Jesus must be in the left hand box. It's just logic. But some of you who uh, maybe are looking at the verse or remember it might have a rebuttal for it because it, their translation says all things came into existence apart from Him. Okay. Oh. So example apart, but this this still can work to your advantage, okay? Because it doesn't make sense, as you'll see here in a second. So if I said to you, apart from myself, my family went to the beach. Obviously, and then if I told you that I went with my family to the beach, you're going to say that doesn't make sense. You said apart from yourself, right? Uh, so that's the way that they're interpreting it. But that's assuming that you can replace the word apart from with excluding Jesus, so if you replace that phrase with excluding Jesus in their verse, this is what it says. Excluding Jesus, not even one thing came into existence. Okay, so I had to sit there and I'm furrowing my brow, trying really hard to figure out what it means. What it's saying is that nothing exists, exists except Jesus. So their translation of this verse, what it literally means is that nothing exists, exists except Jesus. Right? So you can show them this as well. So if they bring this rebuttal to you, uh, obviously we know that's not true. Me and you exist. We're not Jesus. They'll acknowledge that they're not Jesus and that we exist. This just doesn't work. Okay. So what it actually means, it doesn't mean excluding Jesus. It means apart from his agency. So uh, like, for example, if I said apart from me, my family can't get to the beach. Okay, because I have, like, I'm a tyrant. I have total control over the family car. They cannot get to the beach without me because I'm the, I'm the one who holds the keys. Okay, so it means without, they can't get there without me. 
So it's the same thing when it says uh, that apart from Jesus, not one thing came into existence. It means without his, without him, nothing would have come into existence. So it's he's necessary for everything to exist, is what it's saying. So their their whole translation is this one big logical uh, fallacy. <clears throat> All right, so continuing on with how they view Jesus. So if you remember from last week, uh, they say that Jesus was an archangel, and that he was the archangel Michael. Okay, so then they quote Jude 9, which says, but, then, uh, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So that's Jude 9 from the ESV. Uh, archangel, like there's this weird thing that happens in English when they translate. They don't translate every word sometimes. Like the word baptize, that's literally the Greek is just baptiz, <laughs> baptismo. So it's, it means submerge. So when you see the word baptize in English or in your Bible, it should just say submerge. For some reason, they've historically just not translated that word and they just transliterated it. They just took the Greek letters and made them into English letters. They do the same thing with archangel. So if you want to translate it, it means chief angel or chief messenger. Right? You're the chief one. Because uh, <clears throat> actually, angelos is also Greek. That's just translated transliterated word. Uh, so they want to say that because archangel is the chief angel, therefore Jesus, he's the chief angel. Therefore, Michael and Jesus have to be the same person. Uh, but archangel is not a title or position that Michael holds. Okay, it's a description of what type of preacher he is. Okay, uh, we'll we'll see that in uh, uh, Daniel chapter ten, which says the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for twenty one days, but Michael, one one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the, uh, with the kings of Persia. So he's just one of several creatures who are called archangels. They're just they're just really powerful spiritual beings that God created. He's not the only one. Uh, and by the way, as a, a side note on the Jude 9 verse, if Michael, a.k.a. Jesus, is the chief of the angels, then why does he need to invoke Jehovah to rebuke the devil? Because he's the chief angel, what is the devil? Right? He's just another angel. So if he's the one that's more powerful, why can't he do it himself? And by the way, Michael's the one who created Satan, according to Jehovah's Witnesses. So the person who does the creating is greater than the creation, right? So it's just another logical fallacy where it doesn't, it doesn't make sense if you think about it. Like, point this out to them, all right? You can use their own translation for this as well. Uh, this is another verse that they quote from Thessalonians, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So they want to say that Jesus descends with the voice of an archangel because he is an archangel. But if you just keep reading the rest of the verse and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So if Jesus is an archangel, according to this verse, he's also a trumpet. Okay, so... Point that out to him because it, it just doesn't make sense. It's clearly just metaphorical usage of the of the word. So, uh, and then you have the book of Hebrews, which the first part of the book is just clearly written to denounce the idea that Jesus is an angel. 
Like they, it specifically deals with this question. You can pull it right from their own translation as well. Uh, it says in Hebrews right at the start that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So he's one in essence with God the Father is what this is saying. Okay, so they're the same of the same essence. They're both God. And then as you just go on a few verses later, it says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. It's quoting verses from the Old Testament, from the Psalms. And it's specifically addressing the issue saying, Jesus isn't an angel. Okay, so because to what angel did he say this to? Okay, and the Greek construction there is so that it's, the answer is none of them. Okay, there are no angels that God ever said this to. Okay, and that carries on. Hebrews 1.7 says, of the angels, he says, and it says he has a verse that he quotes. And then in verse 8, the next verse, it says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So it's very specifically saying God says this about angels. God says this about Jesus. He's God. He's his son. It's very clear. You can just pull it up right up and give it to him. All right. Any questions about that? Comments? All right. So here's that orthodox view, of, uh, orthodox chart view of Jesus. Some of you had wanted to see it again. So <laughs> there it is. Uh, basically, everything in the middle is what it's what the Nicene Creed basically says, um, and it's the correct view what the Bible teaches of Jesus. So he's truly God, truly human. Uh, and he's one person with two natures. So he's so he's not two people. He's just one person, but he's got two natures: a human nature and a god and a, uh, a godly nature. And then there are some particular heresies that were all denounced by the church, and they're all covered. Basically, every cult that's going to have some aberrant view of who Jesus is falls into one of those six categories every time, okay? And as I've already said, Jehovah's Witnesses fall into the Arianist, uh, Arianism uh, category, where they believe that Jesus was not fully God. He was just partially, like he was a powerful being, a God. And uh, the notes, like if you want to be able to get this chart more easily, they're posted uh, on the website with the audio of the, of the class, so you'll be able to just download them from the website at some point tomorrow or maybe by uh, Tuesday, depending upon when it gets done. Physical resurrection. Ooh, I'm going to have to move fast. Uh, remember, this is what they said last time, studies in the scriptures. Uh, the man, Jesus, is dead, forever dead. That's Charles Taze Russell making the point that when Jesus died, his body was, was done. He went on, he was a spirit creature again. He stopped being a man at that point in time. But what does the Bible say? Uh, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So it's, he's prophet, Jesus is declaring that he's going to raise his body in three days. He's not just going to raise his spirit. It's very specifically his body. And by the way, the tomb was empty. Okay. If Jesus had a spiritual resurrection, what was the point of God disintegrating the body? There's no point to that. 
The fact that the tomb is empty is evidence that it was a physical resurrection, that Jesus' body was brought back to life. Uh, And again, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples after the resurrection. Uh, He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And where, excuse me, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Right, lives from Luke 24. He's very specifically making the point. He's going out of his way to demonstrate that this is a physical body that he has post-resurrection. And then Paul makes the same point in 1 Corinthians 15. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. This is a verse that they're going to quote in their their defense and say, aha, it says spiritual body, therefore it is not a physical one. Uh, But Paul does not mean mean physical when he says natural, and he does not mean non-physical when he says spiritual. Okay, this is context right within the book of itself. So in chapter 2 of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They, for... uh, for they are folly, so I'm not supposed to say folly, folly to him, and he is able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but himself to, is himself to be judged by no one. Natural person, according to Paul in this letter, is a worldly person who seeks out sin, and a spiritual person is a person who understands God's mind and seeks him. Okay? <clears throat> so it's not physical, non-physical. So it's when we say that we're going to have spiritual bodies, it's going to be bodies that are free of sin, bodies that seek to understand God, that know him, that are fit for heaven. Okay? Our current bodies are not fit for heaven. They, won't, they, won't, they can't live there, but our new bodies can. They'll be spiritual in that sense, but they're going to be physical. So Paul even also says uh, right after the verse that we just read uh, in 15, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So our bodies are going to be just like the ones that Jesus had, glorified, physical, flesh and bone, and fit for heaven, glorious. Uh, Eschatology, going quick, uh, and the the Jehovah's Witnesses. So refine your discussion with with a Jehovah's Witness to red tag aspects of eschatology, which I have narrowed down to the physical return of Christ, the physical resurrection of the dead, which we just covered, and the fact that there is only one people of God, not two with different eternal destinies. So everything else is, is not red take category, whether you're pre-mill, mill or post-mill, or whatever it is, okay? So don't, try, don't spend the time trying to win them over to your eschatological view, okay? It's gonna waste your time. I tried doing this like 10 years ago, met with an elder of the Jehovah's Witness, spent all this time, trying to win them over. We were talking about eschatology the whole time. It got nowhere, okay? It was a waste of time. So the point is to win them over to Christ. That's your priority, okay? You wanna win them over to eschatology after they're a Christian, go for it. Uh, the, the, the return of Christ will be physical. Uh, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command. So he's going to come down from heaven to earth, okay? So the Jehovah's Witnesses say that he, he's ruling from heaven, right now. That was his return. It was an invisible spiritual return. That's not what the scripture says. Uh, Hebrews says, so Christ having been offered once to bear 
the sins of many will appear a second time. Okay, so he's going to appear. We're going to be able to see him. Matthew 24, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, okay, that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses say, right? That he's ruling from that inner room in Brooklyn, New York, right? Telling these eight men what to do and what to say. Okay, so that's that's the claim that they make. Okay, and but Jesus says, he told you beforehand, do not believe it. Okay, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Okay, so basically what he's saying is going to be obvious. Okay, just like how you can see lightning and how you can see, you know that there's a corpse there because there's vultures, you're going to know that when I return. It's not going to be questionable. You will know. Uh, one people of God, Jehovah's Witnesses divide people into two classes. They have the anointed class, which is the 144,000 people who are going to heaven with Jesus. They do not get bodies. They are going to be spirit creatures with, in, with Jesus in heaven forever. Everyone else, they call the other sheep. They're everybody who gets to live on paradise earth with bodies. Normal bodies, not spiritual ones. Uh, what the Bible says, so this is the verse that they're going to quote from Revelation, the 144,000 that are sealed. Um, we're not going to sit here and try to interpret this tonight. I'm just going to make the points that they change their interpretive method halfway through. So they take the number 144,000 as literal and the tribes of Israel that represents it as figurative. Okay, that's very uh, bad uh, hermeneutic there. You gotta pick pick your translation method or your uh, interpretive method and stick with it. Don't go, don't change it halfway through a single verse, a single sentence. Okay, this is one, it's one thought. You gotta stick one way or the other. Uh, and then everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So John clearly disagreed with the JW interpretation of who goes to heaven. So it's not just 144,000; it's all those who believe that Jesus is the Christ and are born of God. Bible says, continued, all who believe in Christ, not just a select, select few, uh, select group go to heaven. Uh, Paul said in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's other verses right there you can look at. All who believe in Christ are heirs of the eternal kingdom. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not, God's, God, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to <laughs> those who love him? Okay, so there's some other verses there, Galatians uh, and Titus. The righteousness of God is given to all who believe without distinction. Okay, Romans very clear, clearly says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, for there is no distinction. There's no distinction made for those who receive the righteousness of God. Uh, John or Paul himself, sorry, Jesus himself said in John that there's only one flock of God. Says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's talking about the Gentiles. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. See, there will be one flock, one shepherd. There's only one people of God. Okay, does the watchtower speak for God? Uh, they believe that their, their society is God's voice on earth, his visible representation. They're expected to obey the watchtower organization. They're told they have to depend on the watchtower literature to aid them in studying the Bible, or they will be led astray. Failure to obey means you will be disfellowshipped. You won't be able to see any of your family members uh, ever again, even talk to them. 
Matthew 24, who then is the faithful and wise servant? This is where they get that phrase discreet slave, which is the uh, nickname that they give to their governing body, uh, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he set over him all his possessions. So they're saying they're the faithful slave and they've set, uh, Jesus has set them over God's people, right? That's what they, that's how they interpret that verse. Uh, the wise servant is any believer who is faithful. This is an encouragement to every Christian to be faithful to Jesus, not an infallible organization. Uh, and if only the watchtower is the faithful servant, then did God not care that his word was not understood by anybody since the apostles till the late 19th century when they came into existence? Okay, go ahead and ask them that question because I think God did care a lot. And that's why uh, he didn't set up the watch organization to speak for him. Uh, know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but, spoke, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They quote this verse as well to say that you as an individual can't quote, can't interpret scripture, only we can. Okay, Scripture cannot be interpreted by individuals, clearly false. Uh, the Greek word there for interpretation is epiluseos, which means to unloose. So when it, what it really saying is that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own unloosing. It means that it's not tied to the person. Okay, we don't have a word for that in English. So they just say interpretation. It's really hard to, to translate that word. We just don't have that concept in English. Uh, but it's saying that it's not tied to the person who wrote it. Okay, it came from God. So this is a question of origin, not interpretation. <clears throat> Uh, this, so you know the example of the eunuch who Philip uh, helped him interpret Isaiah from Acts chapter 8. They use this as well, saying you need a guide in order to study the scriptures. That's not what it means. Okay, God gives the church leaders, uh, it gives the church teachers, Ephesians 4, and also sends the Holy Spirit to help us understand scripture. Okay, ironically, these verses show that one man teaching another man directly from the Bible without aid from any organization. Okay, so... It doesn't mean what they say it means. Uh, we're to test truth claims by scripture, not an external organization. Uh, last slide, the watchtower, do they speak for God? They cannot be the group speaking for God on earth because they've made actually quite a few false prophecies. These are just two that I listed, but uh, there are lists on the internet and website and uh, YouTube videos that you can go watch if you'd like. Uh, they predicted very specifically in 1925 that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would rise from the dead and they would come live in San Diego. That's in their Watchtower magazine literature. Okay, You can still access that to this day. You just have to go to an archive website. Uh, you won't find it on their website. Okay, You have to go to like archive.org or something. Now, they also predicted in 1975 that human history would end and that the thousand-year reign of Christ would begin. That obviously didn't happen. Okay, So it's been well, like almost... Yeah, almost 50 years since then. So, uh, yeah, it was a big miss. But there's a whole bunch of false, of false prophecies that they made, clearly indicating that they're not from God. So, any questions? I know I had to move really fast there at the end, so I got to talk too much at the beginning. All right, I'll let you guys read that, uh, and then we'll pray. So, thank you, Lord, for our time here. And I hope that it was, well, I trust that it was good and fruitful. And I pray that um, you would 
the truth, the truth of your word about the Trinity and your Bible and who you are and who your son is would resound in our hearts and that you would help us to proclaim it to Jehovah's Witnesses as we encounter them. Uh, give us a heart for them to see them saved and uh, help us to uh, just really love them when they show up at our doors and to speak truth to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for having me, guys. Uh. Hey, and if you want, if you want the notes, again, I can. They're, they're going to be on the website. So. I just have a question about yeah. your app, oh. that slide. You're going to shut.